This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Daniela Hermelin, an assistant professor of pathology at St. Louis University School of Medicine. She's the medical director of transfusion medicine services at SSM Health, St. Louis University Hospital, and Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital. She was the recipient of the AABB 2019 President's Award in recognition of her role as a master educator and leadership in the use of social media, particularly Twitter, to teach and share knowledge in the fields of blood banking and transfusion medicine. That, that's a huge honor and I think uh, also dovetails in and why we asked her to, to round with us today. Not only that, but she's also the associate editor for Blood Bank Guys Essentials podcast, so also very well known in our field. Dr. Hermelin is passionate for medical education and transfusing blood education to all levels of learners and will be discussing with us what learners should pay attention to during training in order to be successful in real life. So very timely podcast as we're recording this at the beginning of July, that academic medical year. So thanks for joining us today, Dr. Hermelin. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be speaking with my own mentor and my own friend who <laughs> I share I share that award with. You're too kind. You're too kind. Yeah. So let's kick this off and really, uh, again, our audience, we've got students, we've got people in clinical practice, and, and we've got our um, lab medicine colleagues. I think for all of us, you know, we're all learning as we're talking about medicine as a continuing learning process. And so maybe let's kick off with why. So why is it not enough for learners just to focus on the curriculum of their program? I think that's a great question to start our minds thinking about how to approach becoming a doctor physician in general, which is we have a curriculum and uh, Justin, you know this about me. I love cooking and I've got a ton of cookbooks. And I think that there's a lot of similarities actually between cooking and being a doctor. And so we have recipes, we have instructions. And I think that you really can't become a very good chef by just reading cookbooks in and of itself. And so that too, to become a good physician, you could read as much as you want, but you have to be in the hospital, touching patients, feeling what a big thyroid is like, seeing blood banking in real life. You really need to be in person. You really need to have a mentor. You need to have someone who could share with you not only what you're learning in the textbooks, but what is really happening in real life to a patient. And I think we call that apprenticeship. I think that's the difference between learning from a curriculum and learning in real life, being inside the kitchen and really feeling, seeing what that smells like, what that tastes like. I love that answer, right? I think you're dead on about, we need to think about this as a uh, cognitive apprenticeship. I love your analogy with the cookbook. And you know, a lot of times you hear that in practice, right? This isn't cookbook medicine. Uh, this is really maybe the art. So I guess maybe as our learners can think about the curriculum that's written down or the textbook that you're referenced to, that's the science of medicine. But what I hear you're pointing out is that we need to pay attention to that art of medicine. And so 
along that line, what are maybe two or three things that learners should pay attention to during their training, right? We're at the beginning of this academic year, so students listen up for these insights. For those of us in the lab that are in practice, they can also follow along on social media, add their own perspectives on what learners should pay attention to. But Dr. Hermlin, what do you recommend that learners pay attention to? At least a few things. As we have new pathology residents or residents in general coming in or whether you're a new fellow, my first piece of advice to a new learner is that you want to take your first year and think of it as a year of developing good habits and not to make any big mistakes. And when I say big mistakes, we're saying to make sure we get patient identification right. And when I say learn good habits, look at not only your attendings, but look at your peers around you and draw and learn from everyone how they approach a case or how they approach the rhythm of their work. And when you develop these very good reflexes, you develop these very good habits, you're gonna have a lifelong skill, a toolbox of skills. So for example, as you start maybe needing to do a peripheral smear review, you wanna make sure that you are looking at the right patient. You wanna make sure you have a systematic approach you wanna make sure that when you're signing out that case, you are reassured that the content that you're putting in is accurate and reflects what you want to say. You wanna be able to create a system for yourself. So I don't wanna to say to check yourself because checking means that you're prone to errors. What I like to say is that you want to be reassuring yourself that how you are approaching something is done properly. And that comes with creating very good habits for yourself. So in that first year, look around you, look at some of your peers, look at your attendings. You can learn from everyone. What are some good ways that you're gonna take on so that you have a toolbox to approach all of your cases and all of your patients? I really like that idea of craft, this reassuring, as we're kind of talking about the, the habits of our mentors. So paying attention to the habits of our mentors and understanding that those habits are what is reassuring them. That is a key source probably for their uh, confidence that they've got in their clinical practice. What's another thing? The second thing I would say is that you want to practice being visible. Part of your job is just to be present every day and establishing yourself as a person that is reliable and that is dependable. And so that visibility, especially in the laboratory, is so important. And I think what you'll find in the beginning is that it may be the learning is going towards you, right? So you're what we call a taker. You're taking information in because you're learning from the technologists, from your laboratory scientists. You're learning from your attendings. You're learning from your colleagues that are, might be at a, a more graduated level, but you're visible here, there. But then you'll find it's so special, your second year, your third year, and perhaps midway in your fellowship, it's going to go in the other direction. 
And so there's a constant back and forth of a give and take and that learning take place from being visible, from being there every day and to just being consistent. And I like to say, my motto is, is that consistency beats intensity. And so that every day of getting out there and learning something new every day and really just grinding at it is what's going to make you an excellent pathologist and an excellent physician. And that comes from everyday practice to really own and be proud of that everyday visibility. It reminds me of, I, I was working at the gym once uh, pre-COVID and, and I noticed somebody with the, the shirt on, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Um, you know, and like so that. this idea of consistency. And I think that dovetails with your previous comment about the habits uh, that we're developing. Do you have a third one that we should pay attention to? Yeah, I think the third one that I would say is work on recognizing and building your clinical intuition muscle. And that's something that comes over time, but you can start listening to it very early on, even on day one. And what is that clinical intuition muscle? It's the muscle that allows you to integrate and synthesize information very quickly in your mind. And it also has to do with instinct. And so as you go every day, you're developing your habits, you're being visible, you're going to start developing that clinical intuition muscle. So I'll give you an example. I like to joke around that I'm a TTP whisperer. So a hemonk fellow will call me and say, Dr. Hermelin, I have a suspected TTP case. I said, okay, give it over. And they say, okay, I have a woman come in and she is presenting with vague abdominal symptoms. I said, okay, tell me now what is the, what are the labs? So very quickly, I'm gathering information and they give me the labs and I'm, I'm building my ideas and my thoughts very quickly. I'm building my clinical intuition very quickly by listening and summarizing the information. And I can tell you within 60 seconds, whether I think this is TTP or not TTP. Now, of course, that is an extreme you have to take more time, investigate, but that's an example of using your clinical intuition muscle. And that comes with time, that comes with experience, and it comes from being courageous and trying to develop it, okay? You're not going to start lifting 25, 50, 100 pounds if you don't increase that muscle mass, right? So I'm gonna, I wanna say that when you're in those situations, take a leap of faith, but listen to yourself because you know what? You've been trained well and you are able to make those decisions, but you have to work on it. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. I think these are brilliant points that I think all our listeners need to take away, right, as, as students, what to pay attention to, as teachers, what to try to make visible. And that's where I want to maybe take our conversation next, because the clinical intuition muscle that you're talking about here, right, that's, that's inside your head. <laughs> that's your muscle doing the work of integrating and synthesizing this information. 
And I think sometimes that's not necessarily visible to learners. And my question is, how could learners really kind of take ownership for their education and, and get that knowledge that's inside their mentors' heads into their heads? Any strategies that you recommend? Yeah, I first definitely believe that you have to take ownership of every single one of your cases and to really know it from start to finish. You know, that is what your job is, is to learn how to become an independent pathologist. And to become an independent pathologist means that you're going to understand how to take ownership of a case and complete it, and of course, pass your boards. But to complete the case, you want to figure out where is the barricade? Where are you reaching your endpoint so that you can complete that entire task? So you have to identify where your gap in knowledge is. Where is that endpoint? So that you can be asking the right questions. Because the last thing you want to do is be so broad in your questioning. I don't understand this. What exactly are you not understanding? And so I think you really have to be reflective and interrogate yourself. You need to take the time to really take ownership of your cases, try to read as much as you can about it, and try to actually figure out on your own, where are you missing information so that you can get the most out of your time with your attending as well and asking the right questions so that you can reach that finish line on your own. And along the way, you're actually building that clinical intuition muscle, because when you have gaps in knowledge, that's kind of synthesizing information and learning how you would approach a case, how you could think about it from different prisms. So I'd say the answer to developing the clinical intuition muscle is being comfortable to approach a case and finish it from start to end taking ownership of each case of yours. As I was listening to your answer there, it kind of sparked in my mind this idea of, I think when I was a medical student, my goal a lot of times, because these were short rotations, short time period with a given faculty member, right? I'd be out with the same attending for a day or at most a week. And so it was really, I want to impress them so I can you know get an honors grade or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And As you were talking there, something dawned on me that once you're talking about graduate medical education, Mm -hmm. residency, fellowship, one, you're you're talking about a more longitudinal training experience, right? You're going to be with the same faculty for the duration of your training that shifts a little bit. It's not so much you're trying to impress them specifically, but you're trying to learn what is inside their mind. And so... I think more so than as a medical student, then I think it more explicitly, the goal is to be very transparent with what you don't know and don't know. And that's what I was taking away when you were talking about, you know, asking the question and sometimes the question might be so broad. And I can imagine sometimes we ask broad questions when we're trying to conceal just how little we understand. And maybe understanding that being transparent and, and making those not gross mistakes like misidentifying a patient, but those mistakes on interpretation as, as you're learning, that's expected, that's acknowledged, and we learn from our mistakes. 
one of the things I heard in your answer too, like this idea of you're not alone, right? So this also goes with this collaboration of education. But one of the things I think about is that, you know, that work of learning is theirs alone. You know, when somebody's asleep, I can't construct <laughs> how to think about transfusion medicine or pathology inside their mind. That is the work that they have to do. Although mm -hmm. I'm certainly, and you're certainly a wonderful partner in that process. Well, thank you. I, I wanna share a little secret with you. So the attendings physician parking lot is right next to the resident fellow parking lot. The difference is one's covered, one's not. I loved being in the resident fellowship parking lot. Actually, I'm, I'm attending at the same place I'm the fellow. And when I moved to the attending parking lot, I kind of missed being in the resident parking lot. And that's because I really loved being a resident and a fellow because every day was a day I was a learner. That was my job. I got paid to learn and to unfold a process and to be curious and come in every day and take on cases and learn from them. Of course, to take care of patients, but my first job was to be a learner. And then when I got upgraded to the physician parking lot, the attending parking lot, my life did change a little bit. But the life of a resident and a fellow is one where you are able to really be a learner and come in every day when you wear that hat of a, of a learner, it is so exhilarating. And so being a learner though is unfolding a process. And so when you come in every day, you take ownership of that case, you have the time to really just learn and unfold and expand your knowledge and consolidate that knowledge. And that's what's so exciting to be at the point you guys are at right now. So yes, I agree with you. Being a learner is collaborative and it's an unfolding, a blossoming of a process and just enjoy every second of it. Cause one day you're going to be in the attending parking lot. <laughs> well said. I like to kind of close on asking kind of future stuff, what you're working on. We've yeah. been talking a lot about this art and science of medicine and yeah. about uh, how this curriculum is really the, the science and then a lot of the apprenticeship aspects, right? This is the art. And so I was kind of curious, what are you thinking about explicitly incorporating into your training program with residents and fellows? I'm incorporating something that I did myself as a fellow and expanding this concept of having a professional or career map. And this is something, again, it's, it's this wonderful exercise that every person should do. And it could take place at any point of your residency and fellowship experience. For the fellow, it is something that I do with the fellow at the end of their fellowship which is to write on paper what your five-year goals are. So it's putting on paper what your five-year goals are. And it's using this paper, using this career map to take you into the next five years of your professional life. And what's great is when you take the time to really think about what you want to be doing, what you really, really like, what you are anchored in, it will help you to be very mindful of the decisions you make going forth. So let me give you an example. 
I knew one of the reasons why I went into pathology, I love teaching. So at the epicenter of my career map is teaching. And then of course I have blood banking, transfusion medicine. And I also put the different organizations that I'm affiliated and the other items that I, I really love, you know, and, and it could be even as focused as some of the research you're doing. I put that I like, I very much enjoy studying thrombotic microangiopathy. So it could be a spoke on your career map. And when I had a, a, a discussion about my first job as an attending, my chairperson said, Daniela, what do you think about also overseeing autopsy? Now, many of you will be like, what? Well, actually, I, I was involved in autopsy. I enjoyed autopsy. Am I allowed to say that? And I was chief resident and I actually oversaw autopsy as a junior attending. And so it was just natural for my chairperson to say, would you consider overseeing autopsy? Well, at that moment, I like autopsy. But if I go back to my career map, autopsy was nowhere on my career map. And that was a great reflection exercise I did because at the time, I knew exactly what I wanted to be doing, at least in the next year. Those things, you say five years, but they can evolve. But autopsy was nowhere on there. So I kindly declined and said, I really enjoy autopsy, Dr. So-and-so, but that's not really in my professional goals. So I think that it's very helpful as attendings, as mentors, that we help individuals to be able to maneuver and navigate our professional pathways because I think it's only normal. It's actually probably a good thing that if you are hardworking and passionate and love what you do, you're gonna get overwhelmed at some point. People call that burnout. There are probably many different words to describe it, but you get to a point where you put too much on your plate. And I actually think that that's a good thing because it says that you're excited about what you do. But then you reach a point where you say to yourself, I realize I have this many hours of the day and I am learning what I'm good at and what I like, and it's even on my career map. And then I could use this to be more focused about saying yes and no to projects and moving forward in my professional path. So I would say that one of the things we really have to learn in residency and fellowship is how to drive maneuver and create a map for ourselves professionally. So I couldn't agree more. I think it really sets up the idea of when I hear you say that the words <laughs> deliberate growth come to my mind, making sure that we're growing the way that we want to, because like you're saying, there's that struggle as a junior faculty to accept everything or as a resident to pressure from the, your mentors to just get engaged with everything. But it sounds like you're going to be setting your learners up for deliberate growth this year. And, and I think that's something that all of us, myself included, can take to heart and learn from. I love that. Hashtag deliberate growth. We're adding that. <laughs> So we've been rounding with Dr. Daniela Hermelin on things that learners should pay attention to during training to be successful. And along this line of talking hashtags, you can go to Twitter and do hashtag 
lab medicine rounds. And you can let us know if you're a student, what you are taking away from this podcast. If you are a faculty member, you can let us know how you are going to be incorporating. If you had a different list of things that learners should pay attention to, we really welcome your feedback and insights. Thank you so much, Dr. Hermelin, for taking the time to discuss this with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is really timely to all our listeners. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please follow or subscribe. Until our next Lab Medicine Rounds together, please continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm